Church, today we continue our sermon series entitled First and Ten. We find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20 once again. And today, the topic before us is the Ninth Commandment. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Exodus chapter 20. I want to read verse 16 in your hearing. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, let me begin and conclude in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open up our eyes to see, our minds to think, our ears to hear, so that we may have the truth of the gospel, not only in our lives, but on our lips. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the movie Liar, Liar, it is Jim Carrey who plays the role of Fletcher Reed. He is a fast-talking, well-dressed defense attorney and a habitual liar. He built his cases, he built his life upon fabrications. He lies to his boss, he lies to his secretary, he lies to his ex-wife, he lies to his mother, he lies to his five-year-old son named Max. Fletcher was a man who spent far too much time in the office and not nearly enough time at home. After a young lifetime of broken promises, Max is seated right in front of his birthday cake. He's looking at all the people who were in attendance at his birthday party, all of his family and friends, but the one person he wanted to be there, who promised to be there, was not there, and that was his dad. So as young Max made a wish and breathed out the candles on his birthday cake, he simply said these words, I wish that for one day my dad could not lie. Remarkably, the wish came true. And much of the movie is the next day when Fletcher wakes up and he has a big case in front of him and he goes into the courtroom and his case is built upon fabrications and lies and he physically cannot lie. He tries to lie, but he can't lie. He tries his best to lie, but no lie will come across his lips. For a man who built his life upon lies, this is extremely frustrating and quite difficult. Later he discovers, he learns that this is because his young son Max had simply made a birthday wish. He thought that this spell would pass, and as the hours went by, it did not pass, so he arranged to recreate the evening of the previous night. He had the cake, he had the candles, he had the balloons, he had the birthday hats. He was there with his son and he was pleading with his son, please reverse this spell, reverse your birthday wish. And young Max looks at his dad and he simply says, dad, I just want you to tell the truth. When you and I come to this ninth commandment, I hear God saying to us, I just want you to tell the truth. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not give a false testimony against your neighbor. In its strictest sense, the ninth commandment has judicial implications. There were some times in those days, like these days, when there is a problem that arises, a problem that friends cannot solve. And sometimes those friends become enemies and they take their case in front of a judge. Now, every court system, whether it's the American judicial system or any judicial system of any nation, it, it 
every court system has the same responsibility to discern truth. In order to discern the truth, it's imperative that those who give testimony give accurate testimony, truthful testimony, so that even here in our culture, you've got to swear that the testimony you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, so help you God. Because it's, in, it's in inevitable that in order for the truth to be discerned, the testimony of those giving a witness must bear truth, must be truthful. And so we come to this ninth commandment, and here the Lord specifically says that you are not to give a false testimony. That phrase, false testimony, it means a lying witness. It means an empty witness. You're not to give a lie about your neighbor. Now, this is the first time that God has employed the term neighbor in any of these Ten Commandments. Now, it is implied that you're not supposed to do these things against your neighbor, but here in the Ninth Commandment, the Lord spells it out. He etches it in stone. You are not to lie against your neighbor. You're not to give a false testimony against that person. And your neighbor is not just somebody who lives in a geographical proximity to you. It's not just the person to your right, to your left, in front of you, or behind you. Your neighbor is any person that God allows your path to cross. That's your neighbor. So we are not supposed to lie against our neighbor. Now, if we just understand this in its judicial sense, most of us would say we're home free. Because the reality is the vast majority of us will never have to appear in court and give a testimony. So if the ninth commandment is just limited to its courtroom scene, if it's just limited to its judicial sense where that's the place where you're supposed to tell the truth and not have a false witness or a lying witness against your neighbor, if it's only in the courtroom, then most of us say, hey, finally, I've got a commandment I can keep because chances are I will never go to court. Ah, but if you and I just understand this ninth commandment in its judicial sense, then we are interpreting it in a very inaccurate, insufficient way. Because this ninth commandment, like the other commandments, revealed to us what God values. And in this ninth commandment, God values truth. Not just in the courtroom, but also on the ball field. Not just in the home, but also in the church. Not just in the classroom, but also in the marketplace. God values truth. Just as earlier we said that God values life, therefore there should not be murder, senseless slaughtering. And God values marriage by God's design, therefore there should not be adultery that goes on. And God values your right to personal property, therefore you should not steal. Here in our case of, of Exodus chapter 20 verse 16, God values truth, therefore you need to be a truth teller. You need to be like God. God tells the truth. God will not lie. And as followers of God, we must bear the truth. We must speak the truth, not just in a courtroom, but any place where words tumble out of our mouth. In fact, this ninth commandment causes us to check every word we say. And are we speaking the truth? Or are we giving a lying witness, an empty witness? Are we speaking a lie against somebody else, against our neighbor? In a book that's entitled, The Day America Actually Told the Truth, it is reported 
that of those surveyed, 91% of the people confessed that they lie about trivial matters, things that they don't think is all that important. It also said that some 85%, no, it said some 36% of people confessed that they lie about important matters. So 91% of the people said, yeah, we lie about things that don't matter all that much. 36% of the people said, yes, I also lie about weighty matters, about heavy items. It also said that some 86% of people said they lied to their parents. 75% of the people said they lied to their friends. And 69% of the people said they lied to their spouse. So this morning I need to ask you, have you ever spoken a lie? And you're looking at me just with a blank stare on your face as if to actually contemplate, have I ever lied before? And you're actually thinking, trying to remember a time when you've lied, because you're almost going to say, I don't know if I've ever lied before. And if that is true, then congratulations, you've just spoken your first lie. (laughs) Because apparently, we are not only murderers and adulterers and thieves, but we're also liars. This morning, I want to introduce you to three people who understand the difficulty this ninth commandment presents. The first person is not really a person, it's rather a couple. This first couple, whenever you see him, you always see her. Whenever she is mentioned, he's not far behind. The couple I'm referring to is Adam and Eve, our first parents. Their story is told for us in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And when they interact with this ninth commandment, they will testify that it's easier to believe a liar than the truth teller. God crafted Adam and Eve, plopped them and planted them right there in the Garden of Eden. He said to them, our relationship is marked by freedom. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you'll surely die. Initially, Adam and Eve took God at his word. They believed him. They believed him to be a truth teller. They believed that they had great freedom in their relationship with God. They could pretty much eat whatever they wanted to. They could go wherever they wanted to go. But this tree in the middle of the garden, God spoke to them, gave them his word, and said, do not eat this forbidden fruit. If you eat of it, you will die. You understand what I'm saying? They all nodded in affirmation. They probably even said amen. They've got it. They understand. They believe God to be a truth teller. And then when you come to Genesis chapter 3, For the first time in the cosmic play, for the first time in the sacred script, the devil, our adversary, comes across the stage. The very first words he speaks is a question. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? Now, the primary task of the devil is to kill, steal, and destroy. One of the primary tools he uses to do that is to plant doubt in your mind regarding the truthfulness of God's word. 
He wants you to question whether or not God's word stands. He wants you to question whether God is believable. Did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? The devil has a masterful way of twisting the truth of God. Now, clearly, the devil knew that God did not say you couldn't eat from any tree. The devil knew that the Lord had said, you have freedom, you can eat from any tree, just not the one in the middle of the garden. But yet the devil, as he sleeks his way up to Adam and Eve, he causes them to doubt, causes them to question the veracity of God's word. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's at that moment that Adam and Eve must have thought to themselves, now wait a minute, what did God say? What does his word tell us? He said, no, we can eat from any tree except this one. It's Eve who speaks up. And she says, no, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but we must not eat the forbidden fruit from this tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then she adds her own spin on the commentary of the word of God. And she says, we can't even touch it lest we die. Now, the reality is God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He just said you couldn't eat it. But I understand her extra commentary because she thought to herself, I better put some parameters in place. If I don't touch it, I won't eat it. He told me not to eat it. Therefore, I'll go one step even further and I won't even touch it. I won't even get around that mess. I won't even come close to it because I'll just tell myself if I even touch it, I will die. I understand her adding her own two cents to the word of God. It's always dangerous to do, I might add, but I understand why she did it. And then the devil responds, you will not surely die. God knows if you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll be your own God. You'll know good from evil. God is just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be as knowledgeable as he is. He doesn't want you to be as powerful as he is. He wants to keep you down. He wants to call the shots. You have the opportunity to be your own God. You will not surely die. One of the primary tools the devil uses then and now is he tries to plant doubt, cause question in your mind as to the veracity of the word of God. And then he'll go one step further and the devil will just blatantly disregard and contradict God's word. God said, you must not eat of it. If you do, you'll surely die. The devil said, you will not surely die. Now here's a dilemma. Who will Adam and Eve believe? Will they believe God or will they believe the devil? And the story of Adam and Eve reminds us that it is always infinitely easier to believe a liar than the truth teller. It's easier to believe a liar than the truth teller because the liar was right there in front of them. He was just enticing them and they had a decision to make. Will we believe God or will we believe the devil? You know, many thousands of years have passed, but not a whole lot has changed. When it comes to your faith journey, God has given you his word. His word incarnate, Jesus Christ. 
His word living inside of you, Christian. And his written word, we call it the Bible. He has given you his word. And the adversary sleeks along the stage of your life. And he always tries to cause doubt, questions. Did God really say? And it prompts some of us to ask the question, I don't know, did God really say it? And we have to think, well, what did God say? How does he want me to live? What decision does he want me to make? And then in that moment, you, like Adam and Eve, you've got a choice on your hands. Will you believe the devil or will you believe God? And the Bible says that Eve saw that the fruit was good, pleasing, and desirable. So she took some and she ate it. Whenever the devil tempts you, friend, that temptation initially will always appear good, pleasing, and desirable. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, the devil never, never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows you the fun, the excitement, the allure, the ecstasy, but never the consequences. He never tells the heavy drinker, you know, your allegiance to the bottle is going to cost you everything that matters the most to you. I mean, you keep drinking, you're going to lose your family, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your kids. The devil never says that. The devil never says to the adulterer, you know, if I were you, I would think twice before I go on the other side of that hotel door. Now, on the other side of that door, there'll be a few moments of fleeting fun and excitement. But also on the other side of that door will be broken homes and broken marriages, unwanted pregnancy perhaps. Maybe a sexually transmitted disease or maybe just guilt that dogs you all the days of your life. Oh, the devil never says anything like that. The devil never tells the thief, I wouldn't steal that if I were you. I mean, if you get caught stealing that, you may go to jail. And if you go to jail for stealing that, you got to staple that to every job description you ever submit. The devil never says anything like that. He never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows what is good, pleasing, and desirable. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. It was desirable and it was uh, pleasurable. So she took some and she ate it. There's some, some people who want to try to blame the fall of humanity squarely on Eve's shoulders. People think in their minds, you know what, if Adam had been there, he wouldn't have put up with that. I mean, he would have put his foot down. He would have told her what for. He would have directed her in the right way. Because we think to ourselves that Adam must not have been there. He probably was taming a tiger. He was probably lassoing a giraffe. He was probably having a quiet time. He was probably deep in some theological thought. But the reality is, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Adam was right there with her. And he said nothing. She took the fruit. She ate it. And she gave it to her husband, who was with her. Adam knew the truth. Eve knew the truth. Adam had heard the very word of God spoken from the lips of God. He knew the parameters. He knew what should have been done and what should have not been done. And in that moment of testing, in that moment of temptation, he stood there in dumbfounded silence. He was supposed to be the spiritual leader of his home. What does it mean to be the spiritual leader of the home? It means to be the echoer of the word of God. 
that we are to know the word and we are to proclaim the word. And at the moment that anybody in our family is about to step outside of the will of God into uh, disobedience of the Lord, we are supposed to verbalize God's word. Adam says nothing. He took it. He ate. Their eyes were opened. For the first time ever, they knew themselves to be naked. It was embarrassing. It was uncomfortable. They were afraid. They heard God walking in the cool of the day, as was his custom. Quickly, they sewed fig leaves together. They covered the parts of their bodies that were different. They hid. And the Lord asked the question, Adam, where are you? This question was not asked so the Lord would know the whereabouts of Adam. This question was asked so that Adam would know the whereabouts of Adam. Adam, where are you? I was naked and afraid, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were supposed to be afraid? Why have you hidden from me? Did you eat the forbidden fruit? It's in that moment that he threw Eve under the bus. If you listen closely to the scripture, you can hear him rolling over her backwards and forwards. It's not me. I ain't going down for this. It's not me. It's her. I mean, she's the one. She gave me the fruit. And God, by the way, you made her. And so partly you're to blame because it's really not my fault. It's Eve's fault. And Eve said, no, 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 no. You ain't going to bring that mess in my house. It's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. You get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and you get what some theologians, most theologians call the proto-euangelion. It's the first example of the gospel where the Lord says to the serpent, I will curse you. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. The seed of the woman will crush your head, and the seed of the serpent will nip his heels That's a picture of the gospel. The New Testament writers say that this is what happened at Calvary. Because at the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, Jesus, the seed of the woman, he was executed. He was killed. The seed of the serpent, the devil himself, he came and nipped at the heels of Jesus and he caused some temporary pain and there was death. And Jesus' dead body was taken off the cross, placed into the grave, and on the third day he rose victoriously from the dead. And I'm just convinced that the very first step that Jesus took on Easter Sunday morning was the step that crushed the serpent's head. Because Jesus showed himself victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he crushed the curse of Adam. And all this happened. Because it's infinitely easier to believe a liar than the truth teller. The way Adam and Eve could have withstood this temptation is by being rooted in the word of God. They had the word. Had they been rooted in it, they would have overcome this temptation. But because they were not rooted and convinced of the veracity of the word of God, they were overcome by the temptation. What played out in the Garden of Eden plays out in the garden of your life and my life every day. Where we are given the opportunity. Are you going to believe God or are you going to believe the devil? 
And maybe, friend, you can acknowledge the difficulty of this ninth commandment because you know, like Adam and Eve, it is infinitely easier to believe a liar than the truth teller. But I'm here to tell you that the way you survive is by being rooted in the Word of God. The word that lives inside of you, the word that is written in front of you, you are rooted in that word, and there you find strength in every temptation. I want to introduce you, secondly, to a man named Pontius Pilate. His story is told in John chapter 18. Pontius Pilate reminds us as he interacts with this ninth commandment that it is easier to question the truth than to believe it absolutely. It is easier to question the truth than to believe it absolutely. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor. He was stationed in Jerusalem and in its surrounding vicinity during the days of Jesus. The religious rulers apprehended Jesus. They really wanted to take care of the rebel-rousing rabbi from Galilee. So they brought him to Pontius Pilate, wanting him to indict Jesus and give the order for crucifixion. In a dramatic scene of John chapter 18, it is Jesus standing in front of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate asked the question, are you a king? And Jesus says, I am. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then my disciples would have fought in the garden. So you are a king. Yes, Jesus said. This is why I was born. I came to give testimony to the truth. And anyone who listens to me is on the side of truth. Pilate looks at Jesus and has this question. What is truth. 2,000 years have passed, not a whole lot has changed. I think there are a lot of people in our culture asking the Pilate pontification. They're asking the same question that Pilate posed to Jesus. What is truth? Jesus said, I came for this reason. I came to give testimony to truth. And anyone who sides with me, anyone who listens to me, takes the side of truth. And Pilate piously looks at Jesus and says, what do you know about truth? What is truth? I think people today are asking the very same question. So that our culture has affirmed that there's no such thing as absolute truth. I wonder if that's an absolute statement, but need I digress? But they make the claim there is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth these days has been questioned. It's been dismantled. It's been disregarded. It's been redefined. It's been canceled in our culture. Truth is up for grabs these days. So that we live in this American culture of the 21st century, and truth is subjective and relative. It is beyond postmodern. It is now divergent and paradoxical. What do I mean by that? I mean that truth these days is subjective. 
So what's true for you may not be true for me. And who are you to tell me what's true? Who am I to tell you what's true? Because truth, according to our culture, is subjective. And even your subjective truth is relative. It's relative to your circumstance and your situation. So you could apply truth one way to one circumstance and another way to another circumstance and still in this culture be regarded as virtuous. Because truth is subjective. Truth is is relative. It is divergent. What do I mean by that? I mean that people can have rampantly different truth statements. And yet, all those truth statements are regarded as equally valid. It's paradoxical. What do I mean by that? I mean that those equally valid truth statements can appear to be contradictions. So that we live in a culture where conclusions are formed by fabricated facts. And my friends, if a fact is a fact, it cannot be fabricated. Yet we live in a culture where that nonsensical stuff makes sense. That you can build a case on fabricated facts. You just make up your own facts. If it's facts, it can't be made up. If it's facts, it can't be fabricated. If it's fabricated, it can no longer be a fact. Am I, can I get an amen? I mean, we live in a culture where everything is so topsy-turvy, upside down, that it just doesn't, it doesn't stand up to reason at all because we can form a conclusion based on fabricated facts no you can't if it's fabricated it's not a fact if it's a fact it can't be fabricated we live in a culture with so much rampant diversity that it leads to unbridled tolerance so that tolerance is greater than truth it doesn't matter If you're claiming the truth, you've got to be tolerant. If you're not tolerant, then it doesn't matter what you say because we live in such a rampant diversification of culture where everybody's truth can be subjective and divergent and paradoxical that you can say pretty much whatever you want to say so long as everybody is tolerant of everything except Christianity. You can't have exclusive truth claims of Christ. You must be tolerant. So we live in a culture where truth is defined by whatever whim you want to define it by. And we live in a culture where morality is relative and ethics are situational. So that anybody can pretty much do whatever anybody else wants to do. The problem is, truth is truth, absolutely, or it would not be truth. Truth has to stand the test of time, or it is not truth. I remember years ago, I sat down with a friend. His name is Adam. At that time, he was 30 years of age. He was young. He was sophisticated. He was educated. He was very intelligent. He was a registered nurse at a local hospital around the church where I pastored. We would occasionally go to lunch. I remember one lunch vividly. We would sit and talk, and 
even though he claimed to be an agnostic, he had a whole lot of, converse, a whole lot of questions about God. And so we tried to engage those questions in conversation. I don't know that I did a great job. I just did the best that I could. I remember on this given day, he made the statement that, you know, as long as you are a good person, I think you're going to go to heaven. And I said, uh, by what basis do you determine what is good? And he said, well, what I mean is this. If you're born a Jew and you're a good Jew, you ought to go to heaven when you die. If you're born a Muslim and you're a good Muslim, you ought to go to heaven when you die. If you are a good Hindu, if you were born Hindu and you're a good Hindu, then you might as well go to heaven when you die. I think that's what he's having. And if you're a Christian and you're a good Christian, then you ought to go to heaven when you die. We had conversation about uh, how do we determine what is good, and only God can determine what is good. We also had conversation about the exclusive claims of Christ, where specifically Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So either he has to be Lord or a liar, either he has to be the Holy One or a hoax. It's one extreme or the other. And, and so I, I, I did my best to present the gospel to him. And as we were eating dessert, this is what he said to me. He said, Davin, I believe that you believe that. I believe that you believe that. It's true for you. And I believe it to be true for you. But I believe it's not true for me. Now, I wish I had a better ending to my story. It sure would make for a better sermon illustration. But the reality is that's how we left it. That was the last conversation that we ever had. I moved away. I became the pastor of another church. Our paths did not cross again. We did not keep up. I did not do a good job keeping up with him. I do not know where he is today. That was the last conversation that we had where he said to me, I believe that you believe that. And it's true for you. It's just not true for me. And what I wanted to say, and I did say, and I say today, is that I am absolutely certain that there is absolute truth. And I am absolutely certain that all of us are absolute sinners. And we're in absolute need of salvation that only God can give. The God who's the triune God of grace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone that we come into uh, gainful entrance into God's kingdom. It is only by faith alone and Christ alone as we believe in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that any of us are saved. And I'm absolutely certain that Jesus is the absolute way, the absolute truth in the absolute life and there is absolutely no way anybody gets to the Father except through him. Now you may agree with that and you may think to yourself in no way did you just prove absolute truth. You just proved you can say the word absolute a lot. But friends can I tell you that I so wholeheartedly believe in the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ not just because I can say the word absolutely about 12 times in a span of 45 seconds, but also because I believe that the internal evidence in the Bible is pretty strong and the external evidence outside the Bible regarding Jesus being Christ is equally solid. You look in the pages of Scripture 
And you gotta, you gotta come to terms with what Jesus said, the words on his own lips. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I will go to Jerusalem and I will be handed over and the religious rulers will put me to death. And on the third day, I will be raised from the dead. All that internal evidence points to the reality that Jesus is Lord. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is affirmed in the scripture. The disciples saw him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says to the Corinthian church that Jesus appeared in resurrected form to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. If you don't believe me, Paul says, just examine, interrogate, and investigate and interview some of those brothers and sisters, and they'll tell you the same thing I'm telling you. You get beyond the pages of Scripture, the external evidence These apostles, they were so serious about the claim of resurrection, they were willing to die a martyr's death for Jesus. Every one of them did it almost to a person. And not just the apostles, but the early church. And even though there was persecution against the early church, one of the great external evidences that Jesus is the Christ is that his church cannot be eradicated. His church cannot be snuffed out. His church cannot be shut down. I'm here to tell you, the church of Jesus Christ cannot be shut down by any nation, by any government, at any time, in any history, because the remnant of God will always exist, because God has always seen fit that there will be a group of people that will declare Jesus is Lord, and they'll know it not just by faith, but also by fact. And there's also the evidence externally that the body of Christ has never been found. And every Easter, I see the same things that you see. There are archeological digs every single Easter trying to find the bones of Jesus. And they can't be found. It's been going on for 2,000 years and they can't be found. And the reason they can't be found is because the dead bones aren't there. Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to the heavens. You may say, well, somebody hid those bones. They hid them awful well. Because even though everybody in this world's been looking for them, ain't nobody been able to find them. There's other external evidence. Now, this is very subjective, but just look at the life of a transformed believer. And if you're a transformed sinner, it's not that you no longer sin, but listen, you are not who you used to be. And God changed you. I mean, The spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead by the power of God Almighty resides inside of you and sealed your salvation and you give testimony and and, and your story cannot be refuted. It's external evidence that Jesus is the Christ and absolute truth exists. But I will have to concur that when you're like Pontius Pilate, your struggle with the ninth commandment is that it is far easier to question the truth than to believe it absolutely. I told you Adam and Eve needed to be rooted in the word in order to overcome their temptation. For Pontius Pilate, he just needed to know that truth was not a philosophy, truth was a person. And what's true for Pilate is also true for us. Truth is not a philosophy. 
Truth is not a collection of statements. Truth is a person. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Who's he talking about? What's he talking about? The truth is not a collection of statements of dogma or doctrine. The truth is Jesus the Christ. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you know Jesus, then you know freedom. Pontius Pilate would tell you, it's far easier to question the truth than to believe it absolutely. I've got to quickly introduce you to the third person. And the third person was raised in the very same house as Jesus. It's his brother James. James, we learn as he interacts with this ninth commandment, it is far easier to tame a wild animal than it is to tame the tongue. He says it in James chapter 3, verses 3 to 10. A tongue is such a small part of the body, yet it makes great boast. It's like a small rudder that directs a great ship, like a small spark that sets a forest ablaze. So is the tongue. There are many animals that have been tamed and continue to be tamed at the hands of men, but man cannot tame the tongue. When James interacts with this ninth commandment that you ought not to have any lying words tumble from your lips, he says, you know what? It is easier to tame a wild animal than to tame this tongue. I know many people, and the mouth is the last thing they surrender to the Lord. They'll give God their morality, their mentality, maybe even some of their money, but their mouth, their lips, their tongue, that's the last thing that they'll give to God. Evidence of this is you see backbiting and gossip and slander, and I'm just talking about inside the church. I mean, I know you see those kind of things in politicians in Washington, D.C., in the celebrity world of Hollywood and all parts in between, but I'm just talking about in the church. In the church, you find people that have a difficult time taming the tongue. Do you know what that's like? You get in conversations you ought not to get into. You talk about people that you ought not to talk about. You speak of things that you ought not speak about. You say words that you really should not be saying. Anybody guilty of having a difficult time taming the tongue? We have children that will tell their parents just what their parents want to hear. We have businessmen and businesswomen that will tell their clients just what the client needs to hear in order to make the deal. Oh, we will tell our government only what our government needs to hear because we realize that it's far easier to tame a wild animal than to tame the tongue. Friends, I want to tell you that when you interact with James as he responds to the ninth commandment, listen, it is one thing to speak the truth. But before you speak the truth, you've got to know the truth. Adam and Eve needed to be rooted in God's word. Pontius Pilate needed to trust the truth absolutely. And James would tell you, it's not enough just to try to speak truth. You've got to know the truth. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Friend, we come to this ninth commandment, and just like the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, just like the first commandment, second commandment, third commandment, all the commandments, we are lawbreakers, we are criminals, we are murderers, we're adulterers, we're thieves, and now we're liars. We are liars in need of the Lord. We are sinners in need of salvation. We are the raunchy ones in need of the righteous one. And it's only in Jesus 
that we find the fulfillment of this ninth commandment. It's only in Jesus. So my advice to me, my advice to you, when it comes to the ninth commandment, you just cling and clutch upon Jesus. Make much of his righteousness. Let his mind be your mind. Let his actions be your actions. Let his tongue be your tongue. Because we are liars in need of the Lord. I wonder if there's anybody here who needs to trust Jesus as Savior. I wonder if there's anybody here who just needs to say, you know, Pastor, I've been listening to you for a long time, several weeks, several months, maybe a few years, and I have never made public my decision to follow Christ. Today could be the day of your salvation. Stop believing the lies of our culture when it comes to your religious activity. Start believing the truth of the gospel that we are sinners in need of a savior and only Jesus can save us and Christianity is the only religion that shows us that God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. So today, if you need salvation, it is here for the taken. All you have to do is come, accept, believe. Maybe there's somebody here and you say, you know what, I've got a problem with the words that I say. I, they're just little small lies. <laughs> okay. Uh, they're just little, little inconsistencies in my story. Just a little bit of an embellishment or exaggeration. Friend, you're a liar in need of the Lord. Let's just come to terms with that. And today, why don't you come to the altar and just pray and ask God to forgive you and help you. Maybe you need a church home and this is a great place for you to plant. A place that proclaims the truth of the gospel as it's portrayed in the scripture of God. Whatever it is God is calling you, he's calling you, friend. What I love about the Lord is that he wants to call a liar like me and a liar like you unto himself. And he wants to transform us from the inside out so that, so that a liar can be a truth teller only in Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. If there's someone here in need of salvation, if there's someone here who just needs to confess sin, if there's somebody here who needs to join this church, let it be done today. Let it be done now. Lord Jesus, help us, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.